Hi, and welcome to Women at Warp, our Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. Join us as our crew of four women Star Trek fans boldly go on our bi-weekly mission to explore our favorite franchise. My name's Jara, and thanks for tuning in. Today with us, we have our entire crew, starting with Andy. Hello, and Jerry Cat. And Grace. I'm here by myself. I don't have a cat. <laughs> and Sue. Hello, Oswin's on the windowsill. Excellent. And uh, Sandwiches is also here in my recording chambers. So we are all ready to get talking about two very political episodes of Deep Space Nine. But before we get into our main topic, we have a little bit of housekeeping to do first. Our show is entirely supported by our patrons on Patreon. And if you'd like to become a patron, you can do so for as little as a dollar a month and get awesome rewards from thanks on social media up to silly watch along commentaries. Visit www.patreon.com slash women at warp. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash women at warp. And another way you can support our show is by leaving a rating or review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. It just helps more people find us and figure out if, if this is the type of show they want to listen to. The answer is yes, they do. <laughs> and so thanks a lot for uh, for your support in those ways. A few more items of housekeeping. Sue, you just returned from Kineticon? Yes. Sorry it was uh, not mentioned before I went. It was a bit of a last minute trip, but hopefully if anybody was there, I ran into you. Amazing. <laughs> I want to go through a little bit of our, our con- more convention news. Our next big con is, of course, Star Trek Las Vegas oh! uh, at the very beginning of August. Uh, Sue, Grace, and I will be there. And uh, we can say what we're doing, but we unfortunately don't have the schedule yet. That'll be out a bit closer to August. But we will be uh, doing two panels, one with the rest of the Roddenberry Podcast Network about sort of, you know, if we want to get to a post-scarcity utopia, as we see in Star Trek, what would we actually need to get there? And then uh, the three of us will be doing a Women at Warp panel that will be humorously yet respectfully ranking some of the most memorable costumes for women in Star Trek. You'll handle the respectful, I'll handle the everything else. Yeah. (laughs) Um, And uh, Sue, did you want to talk a little bit else about what people can expect? Yeah, just like last year, if you remember, we were giving away some custom stickers. We're going to have some more of those this year. I'm also very excited to say that at the Roddenberry booth, we will have pronoun pins available. So we'll have uh, four options, she, her, he, him, they, them, and ask me about my pronouns. So stop by the booth and get a pronoun pin for yourself completely free of charge. We're very excited to have those this year. And an extra special announcement is that we have enamel pins this year headed to Star Trek Las Vegas. Yeah, we do. They are they have glitter, blue and glittery. They're super fun. We're very excited about it. Those just... Heads up to everybody, we are going to be asking a suggested donation of $5 for an enamel pin. It is our, our basically our iTunes logo. And uh, we are going to be contributing the funds we bring in from that to the uh, heroic, the Pop Culture Hero Coalition's heroic fundraiser for uh, Scott Palm's heroic curriculum. So thanks in advance. Um, if you are not coming to Star Trek Las Vegas but you still want to support the Heroic Coalition. We've been talking about this on the last few podcasts. It's being supported by the Roddenberry Podcast Network, and you can go to their GoFundMe at gofundme.com slash scott dash palm, P-A-L-M dash heroic dash fundraiser, or just go to Twitter and look up Mission Log and see their pinned tweet. And this is a fundraising to make an awesome curriculum that will reach kids for disabilities and their peers with valuable lessons on inclusion, self-worth, and resilience. And we will be donating through the GoFundMe, which means that the Roddenberry Foundation will be matching our donations and any of yours dollar for dollar all summer long. Fabulous. Well, let's get right into it then. So I mentioned we're going to talk about a couple of Deep Space Nine episodes that happen in season four that just uh, struck us as, you know, politically relevant. We had, we've previously done an episode on past tense, so this isn't new that for Deuce's Nine, but the episodes we're going to be talking about are Homefront and Paradise Lost. Is there anyone who wants to take a stab at a really quick summary? Odo and Cisco go back to Earth, and everyone on Earth is freaking out about the changeling threat, but according to a certain admiral, they're not freaking out enough, and he would like to 
put together more security measures against changelings, and the president is not as enthusiastic about that, and so he stages a terrorist attack, essentially, in order to take control, martial control of Earth, and Cisco stops him. Because Cisco's a good guy like that. Yeah, you can count on Cisco to, you know, stop martial law. Fight the good fight. <laughs> Cisco's gonna sisk. Yeah. He's gotta do what he's gotta do. He's also gonna recommend some Cajun food. As you do. Yeah, like you do. So I admit that I totally knew better, yet in my head when I watched this episode, I was like, oh, this is obviously a response to 9-11, <laughs> even though this episode came out in 1996. <laughs> yep. But <laughs> that proves how relevant it keeps being, <laughs> unfortunately. Yeah. <laughs> if I had taken a second to think about it, I would have realized, of course, Enterprise was on in 2001. But yeah, it's very relevant. The timelessness is because this story is timeless. Like, this has played out in history over and over again. Mm -hmm. And I think sometimes people always think that it'll be different for some reason. And yet mm -hmm. the same playbooks still work kind of repeatedly, either because of, you know, ignorance of the historical precedent or they just don't see it, you know, but it's a tale as old as time. Frightened people are not the smartest people. Correct. Yeah. And fear is a, a good organizing tool. Tale as old as time. Yeah, oh yeah. So. I'm going to work, work on the lyrics for that song for a while, but... <laughs> I'm glad someone recognized my Beauty and the Beast reference. <laughs> yeah, I was just trying to think of a way to rhyme... Being a changeling's not a crime. <laughs> <laughs> Don't let your anger stew. Just go revert to goo. <laughs> Please don't sue us, Mr. Mouse. They're probably too busy consolidating their hold over the entertainment industry. <laughs> we can't afford libel. <laughs> All right, so before we get into basically 98% of this episode, which is serious stuff happening on Earth, yeah. there is a really random, like, pre-episode comic relief where apparently Dax is breaking into Oda's quarters and moving all his furniture around. <laughs> Seems a little out of character for her in terms of just, you know... From, you know, being wisecracking and all that to just being like, and I'm going to mess around with Odo's brain. <laughs> I'm yeah. going to gaslight the hell out of him. The thing that I found the most funny is that Odo is like, obviously Cork is the one that's going to have my back in this situation. <laughs> yes. Because when I think of people who are like, how dare you break into somebody's apartment and just completely mess with them. I definitely think Quark is the one that's going to be massively offended by that. Well, sometimes there's a special connection that you only really have with your frenemies, and that is getting offended <laughs> over things together sometimes. I think Odo just forgot the enemy part of it and went straight to his best friend and was like, <laughs> Dude, you're not going to believe this. I feel like this is pretty on brand for what we know of Curzon Dex. Yeah, and I guess it's part of the whole, you know, trying to make Jedzia more fun-loving in around, like, season three and four, but it does seem a little bit random. Yeah. It seems a little frat house, doesn't it? Well, and also, like, kind of over-invasive. Oh, for <laughs> I yeah. feel like... It's not the nicest yeah. prank. I don't know, like, I, I would actually think it would be funnier if she was just moving stuff around in his office then it would be more like an office prank instead of she's literally breaking into his quarters while he's regenerating. So it's not even while he's at work. He's like in his quarters in a bucket. <laughs> and she's like, oh, good. He's goo. We're, we're goo to go. Oh. <laughs> oh. Can we also take a moment to respect the cosplay game that Bashir and O'Brien have? I know. O'Brien looks so good in a fighter helmet. He really does. They really don't break character. <laughs> no, it's that is very cute. And they're they're like the different accents they're putting on mm -hmm. and 
it's that that part's very adorable where they're like mourning their dead comrade <laughs> to cloive well and then okay and then there's this thing about how the wormhole is opening and closing at random and there's another sort of random interchange about belief systems which i feel like this beginning of the episode is just like really randomly tacked on like uh-huh. it, both the scenes are all oh fine they just don't seem to really fit with the rest of it but this whole thing about Kira being like, I kind of wish that the wormhole opening funny was the prophets, because then they'd be talking to us. And then Worf's like, we Klingons killed all our gods. And then Kira's like, I'll never get Klingons. O'Brien's like, no one gets Klingons. <laughs> Lulz. <laughs> <laughs> they will be eternally othered in our culture. Ba-da-ba-ba-da-da. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So it's very, um, I mean, I guess it's because they need us to remember the wormhole was opening and closing at random, but that's the only reason for those scenes. Yeah. I like to think that the wormhole just had gas. <laughs> kind of a here it sits brokenhearted situ- situation. <laughs> I don't know. There is something kind of on theme about Dax breaking into Odo's apartment and like moving around his stuff and him not knowing what's going on. In the yes. terms of violation of personal space and civil liberties, sure. Yeah, exactly. That's <laughs> kind of where I'm going. It's just like, this is tee-hee, and later on it's like, but really, it's not funny. The joke went too far. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so then they go to Earth, and Odo and Cisco. oh, and they're taking Jake, and he has to stay, they have to stay at the grandpa's, and Joseph's gonna make him work in the kitchen. Brock Peterson. Yeah, and Brock Peterson is awesome. I'm sure we will talk more about that. Uh, then they meet Admiral Toxic Masculinity. <laughs> <laughs> now, is that his given name, or did he choose that? And is it hyphenated? I believe it's latent. Uh, Ah! Yeah. <laughs> yes. Ba-doom-tsh. Yes. Admiral T. M. Layton. <laughs> and also, what's her face from Next Generation, who's not from Next Generation anymore? Susan Gibney. Leah Brahms. Not Leah Brahms. But instead Captain is, Benteen? Yes, yes. Erica Benteen. Yes. But she's not a captain yet at this moment. No. I do like how she just shows up and, and we're supposed to be like, well, we've never seen her before. She's just brand new. That's fine with me. It really is. I'm fine with it. Yep. How many times has that happened before in Star Trek, though? All of the times. It's yeah. up there yes. with the head transplants that we just never discuss, like Kirstie Alley. Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, that I, I'm always I mean, perfectly fine with being like, yeah, totally. I've never seen this girl in my life. Her hair is much different. It is down. <laughs> That's how we know it's a different person. Different, different look. Different fun new attitude. So the changelings have exploded people on Earth. Right. This is why this is... There was a terrorist attack that the changelings were behind. Yes. And this was like a legit thing that was actually caused by a changeling, or at least never stated otherwise. And like several people died. 27 people died. The most people murdered on Earth in almost 100 years. Isn't that lovely? Yeah. That is so lovely. I just, the first time I watched this episode, I was like, I want to go to there. Yeah. <laughs> it just makes me, bel- the only way that's possible, though, is if we've kind of ended up in an es- escape from New York situation and all the super crime-ridden cities just are not anymore. This is a future in which violence on Earth is not a thing anymore. What a concept. It's kind of unthinkable to us, especially as American as an American, the idea that you wouldn't just get randomly mowed down by horrible violence just doesn't seem right. It just seems like such a foreign concept. Yeah. That and their uh, depiction of New Orleans as being just so very quiet with the streets empty. Like, do they not have their open drink laws anymore in this <laughs> sci-fi New Orleans? You just found a quiet street, Grace. I'm, is that a thing in New Orleans? I'm sure there are streets that are... Not party it's central. Because all the people on his street are in the restaurant. Ah, there we go. It's it's a, it's a bustling. But in real life, it's because they were having budgetary issues and had to cut back on the extras. <laughs> yeah, there are not a lot of extras. Even like at Starfleet <laughs> Academy, there's barely anyone walking yeah. around. We get like one CGI like screenshot of Starfleet. They use it. I think they use the same one in both episodes. And there's just little CGI dudes walking back and forth in the foreground. 
Stephen Bear had a, a kept a post-it note in his office that read, Remember Paradise Lost, because he was so disappointed by all of the cuts they had to make because of the, the budgetary issues during this episode. Well, he still turned out a good episode, so... Yeah, for sure. Remember Paradise Lost? It's awesome. It was a good episode. Both these episodes are very good. And yep. I one thing I like from the beginning is how tense it is. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I didn't quite know where this was going, obviously, because, you know, I, I do this thing called first time tracking. <laughs> so I didn't know what to expect. And I was just really tense, especially I was really nervous for Odo. Like, for me, it scared me to think of Odo being away from DS9, away from the crew that trusts him. Just with Cisco surrounded by Starfleet people who hate and fear changelings. Like, I was really mm-hmm. nervous for a long time. He is not just out of his comfort zone. He is out of his uh, sphere of safety. Yeah, and it just, it like, every time they had a conversation where he was, they, they were talking about changelings and he was in the room, it just made me so uncomfortable. And it was it's a, a tribute to Odo that he doesn't show that. He's like pure confidence all the time. He's just such a badass. He did decide not to leave Starfleet headquarters. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's just it's just impressive to me. Like, if I were in Odo's position, I would not want to walk in there, you know? Yeah, and I mean, he even goes out of his way to, like, use his skills to demonstrate how his people can be dangerous. Mm-hmm which is risky. And there's that awesome scene with him and Leighton where it's Leighton's actually a changeling, but he doesn't know that right away. And, he, and you don't know that right away because we don't know Leighton well enough. Right. And he's like basically sassing Odo and being like, well, what are you doing playing around being a seagull? That seems to be kind of a giant waste of time. And also, I guess it's just because you're not a good enough shapeshifter that you can't look like a human. And then he's just like, oh, you're totally a changeling, and catches him. Catches him in the act, but then the guy flies away. But I kind of love that scene because, like, you just don't know what to expect from who and whether the president or the admiral or Benteen is going to be, like, really hostile and just push it a little bit too far and decide suddenly Odo's the enemy. It's designed to scare us as well, right? So that we become complicit in that fear. Mm-hmm. Also, we definitely get the idea that the changelings know exactly what they're doing, and they're getting cocky about it, just like, oh, we've got you guys so freaked out. And yeah. we get to see that carry over in, I want to say, in the second episode, when Cisco's talking to one of the shapeshifters pretending to be O'Brien, and he's showing up, he's just like, oh my gosh, there's only like four of us on Earth, and we've got you so freaked out. And this is what I think is so brilliant about Homefront specifically Homefront, is that every action that they take seems right when they take it, Mm -hmm. right up until the end. Yeah. That's exactly what it's like. People think that it's just like, oh, one minute we were good, and the next minute everything fell apart. No, 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 no. It's, it's, It's called creeping fascism for a reason. It's every time you make a decision, you push yourself a little bit further, you push your your skill at justifying what you're doing a little bit further, and the next thing you know, you look back and you can't pinpoint the moment that you lost control. And you can justify mm-hmm. a lot out of fear. Yeah, and I think that's so brilliant, and it was important that the audience be on board with that for a long time, otherwise that message is diluted. So, like, that's where, okay, so when we when I first saw this episode, I was like, I'm really enjoying this stuff with Cisco and his dad a lot, but I don't understand mm-hmm. why it's here. And obviously by the end, I was like, wow, he really, that subplot definitely needed to be there because he was the one that's outside of the Starfleet structure. He's not in politics. He's just a dude who cooks food, but he's also wise and canny. And he's he's such a good representation of, like, the everyman, but, like, a smart one. And Mm -hmm. seeing his shifts throughout the episode and then into the next one really do a good job of contrasting that. So, like, at first you see him and you're like, why is he being so stubborn? 
You know, he's, he's an just, old man. Yeah, he's just a crotchety old man. Like, they're doing this to keep people safe and blah, blah, blah. And it's important that the audience be at least somewhat understanding of the decisions that Starfleet is making at that point. And then when you get into Paradise Lost and suddenly he's not fighting it anymore, that's the, like, light bulb for Cisco where he's like, ah, so you got this guy to play ball by scaring him. And I just think it's really well done. I also feel mm-hmm. like there's there's a statement of some kind being made there uh, with the casting of Brock Peters, who, what a freaking gift to have him involved in Star Trek. Outside of Star Trek, his Star Trek roles, he's probably best known as Tom Robinson in To Kill a Mockingbird. And I think it's, they're saying something when they've got your character who's like, no, I'm not having my civil liberties be impugned upon. I'm not accepting this when this is a guy whose, you know, most famous role is about is about racial tension. I think it's really interesting, too, that scene where Cisco shows up when they want to blood test Joseph, and he's like, you're not going to let them do this. And and Ben tells him, in fact, I signed the order. So it, it shows how different your outlook can become based on your your place in the system. Mm-hmm. But I also think it's a it's a really, uh, I guess, subtle, I'm not sure. I think it's a, a relatively subtle visual cue that throughout these episodes, we see Cisco in a TNG-style uniform. Yeah. Right? So we see him out on Deep Space Nine most of the time with, with the color blocking on top. And he's, you know, out on the, the edge of Federation space and where where the rules don't always apply like the rules apply and then he comes back to earth and he's back in that uniform and he is like mired in the the red tape and the the political dealings of the federation and we see that change him and that's reflected visually in the uniforms he's wearing while he's there also the whole aspect of uh Cisco and Odo coming to earth and ship spreading their knowledge that's part of what's making you root for them and making change. You're kind of like, oh, here come the prodigal sons. They're here to show you how we do it out on Deep Space Nine. Because you people on Earth don't know what, what we've been up to and what we've had to deal with. And you want them to succeed. You want them, people to see how hard they work. And that it is very different on Deep Space Nine than it is on Earth. I just thought that they had uh, a lot of leftover TNG uniforms probably- and they were saving money. <laughs> That's probably But it. that is a good point. Um, and also, I mean, like, so you said the about your outlook changing based on where you are in the system. I think it also mirrors the way that your outlook sometimes changes based on generational experience. Oh, yeah. Because, and we don't know this for sure about Joseph Sisko, but, you know, we observe in our own world that people who can literally remember living in fascist regimes or in a time of fascist regimes see that danger of that reoccurring is more real than those of us who haven't sometimes. Mm -hmm. And that it's easier, not just with that as an example, but things like there's actually been like studies about like how serious we think things like smallpox are or like things that we like polio, things that we vaccinated away that people don't really have so much of a collective memory around. Mm -hmm. Measles actually being the best example. Like people are like, oh, measles, whatever. It's a kid's disease. Not so serious. Even the flu. Yeah. And like, therefore, if you are like swayed to make a decision on that basis that you shouldn't go get a vaccination, then you start to realize because people start getting sick that actually this was a really big deal. So like collective memory actually does play a strong role. And I think that that mirrors some of the dynamics we see in our society. Yeah, I mean, it's hard for me to see this uh, episode. I mean, I'm like you, Jara, we're pretty much the same age. So much of my understanding of politics has been shaped by the fallout from Mm 9-11 that like I feel like this resonates really hard with me from that perspective just because I mean I was 17 I think something like that in my late teens still in high school and I still remember that couple of days after 9-11 when it felt like everyone like lost perspective completely and even as a teenager it was scary i wasn't scared of terrorism but i was scared of 
how afraid everyone was and how angry they were. And then following that, people just feeling like they needed to show intense pride and patriotism. There was a, a whole feeling of, well, what's next now? Yeah, I remember mm-hmm. sitting in class and this guy I'd been in school with for my whole life, I knew him really well, was just like, after this, we're going to make sure that Afghanistan doesn't exist as a country anymore. And I was like, okay. Like, even as someone who had, at that point, had not studied international politics the way that I did later, I was like, oh, this is, this is dark shit here, you know? <laughs> like, this is a, a really dark and unsettling impulse that the human race has. And obviously, I see it clearer work looking back on it then, but I do clearly remember being really freaked out by it at the time as well. And I feel like this episode captures that. I think one of the most disturbing things about this episode is this underlying idea of your invisible enemy, right? Or your mm-hmm. the enemy is among you. And you might not be able to tell who it is, so you have to be wary of literally everyone. And that resonates a lot with, like, what I remember happening uh, after 9-11. But it is happening again in our current political structure. It has happened before. And it, it just seems to be the tactic of these fear-based platforms right is is making you afraid of everyone around you and continuing to create division and and isolation right so that you're you're wary of everything and aggressive towards everyone and also looking mm-hmm. to someone who says they can protect you mhm mm-hmm. Or willing uh, to accept sudden changes if you're told they're there to protect you. Yeah, definitely. So I feel like this is a good kind of segue into part two. And it's interesting, um, Andy, as you were saying that, like, by the end of episode one, you were like, yeah, this makes sense why they're doing this. Um, And Sue mentioned, like, that was the intention. Uh, We have a quote from... Uh, Renea Chevaria, who described the episode as an attempt to make the audience complicit in believing the threat is imminent and that by any means necessary, it must be dealt with. We go out of part one saying there's going to be a big battle and we're, we've are we got to stop them. Martial law, yes. Clamp down on rights, yes. Blood tests, yes. No civil rights, yes. And then in part two, we find out that the real point of the story is how dangerous this feeling is. And basically that uh, Robert Hewitt Wolf says, yes, this was a total misdirection. So uh, in part two, uh, as we've sort of alluded to, we start to find out that there's some people who for mostly they think they're doing the right thing, but are using fear to manipulate people and do some shady things to try to get control and power so that they think that this will enable them to strengthen Earth's defenses better, strengthen the Federation, and that the Federation isn't strong enough to withstand these threats. Yeah, so thoughts on part two, particularly, where this story starts to go? Well, I did want to say a little bit about that quote, which I think is perfect. Like, that's, they did a really good job on that. I would say that I I was not on board at the end of the first episode. I just might be sensitive to this stuff, but like, also... The really big red flag for me was the Admiral Layton's contempt for the civilian government. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Was really freaking me out. So when I went into episode two, which I watched this morning, so I can tell you very clearly, when I went into episode two, I, I, my impression was this was a plan the changelings had to turn the Federation against each other. I had not figured out that the Federation itself did this, or rather elements within it, but I had definitely figured out that the chaos was the point, I guess, Mm -hmm. and the big red flag for me was when your military starts deciding to take these decisions into their own hands over the civilian government or, like, finding ways to sideline the civilian government, that's when me, the, the big warning bells start to ring. So I didn't just want to say that, but overall, I think that that's a really cool quote that 
I think they should be proud of their execution there, their intent, and then the execution. Absolutely. I love how also um, this episode turns out to be kind of a larger scale version of the monsters are due on Maple Street. Uh, Just the idea that, oh yeah, an outside force can absolutely make you destroy yourself from the inside if it just sows a few seeds of paranoia and then you will just do the work for them. mm -hmm. I remember all of the talk about like the Patriot Act, right? Yeah. And, and we're, we're allowing the government to spy on us, but it's okay if it catches a bad guy. Yeah. You don't have anything to worry if you're not doing anything wrong. Yes. Yes. And to a lesser degree, and we still have it, the increased screening uh, at the airport, right? Mm -hmm. Or in a more general term, security theater, right? So, cause none of that, I, I should say rarely, does that increased screening ever catch anybody intending to do harm at an airport or on a plane? But it is there to make the public feel better and feel like there is a security presence around this mode of transportation. And that the government is doing something. Right. Yeah. And sorry, just because I think we didn't actually mention it. So in this episode, there was uh, the part that we're talking about that was about the Federation was behind or not the whole Federation, but Admiral Layton and his people, spoilers, um, is there was an attack on Earth's power grid, which basically left Earth defenseless. And that was what gave them a little leverage to convince the president to let them declare martial law and give them like Starfleet officers with phaser rifles in streets of all the cities of Earth doing random blood screenings all the time. How prophetic is DS9? It's ludicrous. Yeah, I know. (laughs) Uncomfortable. (laughs) I didn't watch this episode until after 9-11. And so I I don't think I ever really fell into that first trap because I remember so much that discussion about like, well, what was the whole point of uh, basically like if, if you want to stand up against fear and division and hatred then like don't give away your rights and that yeah just those discussions were very like the the speech brock peters makes in the first episode i mean if they spent their whole budget on him and that speech it was worth it yeah (laughs) but just the fact that one of the big concerns right now is attacks on our power grid yep like yeah they, they nailed it they nailed it. Yeah. Well, yeah. And then there's also, you know, I remember also uh, tightening like transit security with like, you know, people being able to randomly check people's bags in on the subway and stuff like that. And of course, all of these disproportionately affect people of color. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it's just like very, very prophetic. That said, how how on point is it for the fact that for our ending of the first episode and start of the second one, the image we get is of Jake and Cisco's dad just kind of waking up, looking out the window, and then seeing, oh, shit, there's armed police in the streets now. Yep. Oh, time for our blood tests, and they just go along yeah. with it. Like, they're, like, a little reluctant, but he's basically now accepted this is a necessity. I meant more like the the visual image of these two, mm-hmm. of two black men just having to look out and be like, mm-hmm. armed police in the street, mm-hmm. and that's your, oh, oh crap moment at the end of the episode Mm -hmm. kind of off topic a little bit but can i just we should probably make a note that one of the things that ds9 does best is strong father son relationships Mm -hmm. yes and in this one we get generational strong father relationships and it's just beautiful to see that's why when i before i even realized how important he would be to the theme of this episode i was still absolutely loving the like character dynamics between these three mm-hmm. men and like these three generations of awesome dudes and their open communication and their love for each other and mm-hmm. it's just lovely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but I do want to say something about the the guns in the street because I remember when I f- I I lived in in Egypt for a while. And one of the scariest things about living in Egypt, mostly it was wonderful, was that there are literally checkpoints, or there were, this was like 2006 maybe, literally like military style police checkpoints all over Cairo with men with huge guns. 
and like riot gear just pretty much everywhere and it's it was kind of amazing how the first time I saw that I was really taken aback and then you know a couple weeks in I would pass them without blinking while going to the bakery you know like that is kind of the the thing that I think people don't understand is a lot of times under oppressive governments your everyday life might not change that much Mm-hmm. And it's scary how much you can adjust to those changes. Exactly. Like, mm-hmm. it's not going to be horrible all the time. That's not what it's going to be like. A lot of the time, you're just going to be living your life and getting up and going to work and going to the bakery the same as you ever did. So I think that that, that scene is really interesting because, as Grace says, it's like one night they go to bed and there's no guys with guns in the street. And the next day they wake up and they are there and... That's just something that happens. It's literally overnight. Yep. Yeah. <clears throat> it's a little bit harder to... I'm just thinking about a comparison to... There's an episode of Enterprise where... I think I think it's actually the episode Home where Flox is on Earth after the Zindi attack and he gets beat up mm-hmm. for being an alien. Yeah. And there's. it's a little bit hard in this episode because there's no like visible difference... And you, although, like, obviously there's no visible difference between the, quote, good guys and, quote, bad guys in real life either. But you do you kind of miss that because you know there's, like, only four possible people. And that, I think, I don't know, there was maybe an opportunity that they could have used to have, like, someone mistake someone for a changeling. I mean, I guess they mistake Cisco for a changeling or they deliberately frame him as a changeling. Yeah. But other than Odo... We don't see, like, we still are in a universe where Odo's the only good changeling. Yeah. And there's definitely said to, uh, something to be said about the politics of having other characters where one of them who is, you know, helping the ones we know and recognize and is being considered one of the good ones, yeah. as it were. He also never has an issue with anything they do. No. Like, he, he even at the very end, it's, like, still kind of one of the more bullish people. I think that is kind of in character, though, because he's just kind of ruthlessly practical to a fault, generally. Mm-hmm. But I did think it was interesting how quickly the Admiral was like, well, if you're not going to do what I want, I'm just going to tell everybody you're a changeling. And then mm-hmm. they'll let me do whatever I want to you. Mm-hmm. How very McCarthyist. Yeah. It's kind of interesting is like as soon as you're not in this protected class of people, which is basically everyone but the changelings, as soon as you're the enemy, then I'm going to be able to do whatever I want to you and no one will care or stop me. We can blow up a ship full of changelings without blinking. Mm -hmm. We can imprison you without apparently any sort of trial or rights or lawyer, all those sorts of things. It's like his rights disappear the second he is a changeling. In their mm-hmm. eyes. Well, yeah. So this is also, it's linked to, like, part of the reason he brought Cisco there wasn't just because Cisco's an expert on changelings because he's on Deep Space Nine and works with Odo, but Cisco used to be his commanding officer, or, like, his uh, first officer. And there's this big speech about the chain of command that Leighton gives about how, you know, do you remember this time and I ordered you to do something and you objected, but I was totally right. And this, like, the chain of command is more important than ever now. And if we don't have that, we don't have anything. And it's really fascinating because he, like, Leighton has this whole cadre of people that are loyal to him. And then he uses the chain of command as sort of additional leverage to get them to overlook some maybe, like, ethical qualms. But you are in this. I mean, Starfleet as an institution that is so heavily dependent on the chain of command and like other institutions in our world reproduces some like crappy power systems (laughs) because crappy people get to the top, bring up other crappy people with them. The cream rises and it sours. And discourage people from thinking critically and from speaking back. And it's... I don't know, it just was interesting to me, because you have this whole thing with Red Squad, too, that was kind of funny. Yes, I was really hoping we'd address that, because we've got this thing we established where Leighton and his folk are 
kind of indoctrinating younger members of Starfleet into this mm-hmm. group that's being treated as elite and given special privileges and are being told basically, you know, you're with us because you're more special and better than the rest of these guys. So you now have every reason to believe that we are the right way to go, right? And that's really creepy when you think about a lot of different facets of history where youth indoctrination was a big part of fascism and just sort of maintaining a very loyal following. Your covert actions have to be secret now, but they'll be celebrated later. Exactly. I think Mm -hmm. what what struck me about Leighton's speech about the chain of command was the where he says, you know, there's a point where you have to stop fighting and you just have to listen. And it's basically like, listen to me because I said so. Yeah. And Mm -hmm. I I mean, I'm doing this. Deal with it. But any time I remember, like, Captain Picard saying, because I said so to somebody, like, the moral of the story was essentially that Picard was wrong. And he should have listened mm-hmm. to the objections of his subordinate officers. So that this guy is is so headstrong that he he doesn't want to consider anything else ever. And he just wants people to to listen to him and defer to him. I mean, that's like 17 red flags right there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So when he was doing that speech is when I actually tweeted that he's one of the best villains the show has ever done. And mm. there are a couple of reasons. One, just that this conversation is so hypocritical and just so creepy. And it, and it was wild to me that he's trying to invoke chain of command when he's literally trying to eliminate the civilian government from mm-hmm. the chain of command so he can be in control. And that kind of hypocrisy is just so compelling to me because... It just goes to show how far people will twist their own justifications into turning them into the good guy. Like, there's no mm-hmm. doubt in my mind this guy thinks he's doing the right thing. And Cisco points out to him that really it's about his own power at this point. But, like, he still is trying to cloak it in. No, I'm trying to protect people. No, I'm doing the right thing. And Justification's I- a hell of a drug. Yeah, word. And then I also wanted to say, read the the cadets, Red Squad. I thought it was so elegant the way that they brought Nog in. And it, it was just oh, yeah. like Sis- uh, Cisco's dad, where I was like, oh, it's cool to see him, but like, why is he here? And then mm-hmm. this subplot of him trying to become accepted at the Academy, even though he's Ferengi, and like, technically that shouldn't matter at the Academy, but it apparently does. And then, like, what he's willing to try and do to get in with the in-group, and then turning out that he is the one that brings vital information to Cisco regarding these group of cadets. Mm -hmm. And then also how incredibly slimy it is that they use children to carry out their work, because they're easier to manipulate. And, I mean, even Cisco, Cisco 100% manipulates that kid. Absolutely. And I understand why he did it, and I'm not saying it's the wrong thing, but, like, when you're in that scene and you're watching him play this this poor, naive kid, you can see how easy it must have been for them to do that, because he just doesn't have the experience to understand that sometimes, you know, the orders are bad. That's one thing I love about Star Trek, this recurrent theme of the might does not equal the right. The people in charge are not always the people who should be in charge. And that it's really important to question the why and how of the structures of authority. Yeah, like we never see in this episode what happens to, I'm going to call him mediocre white guy cat. (laughs) (laughs) And that like casting was so perfect. Like it was obviously we're not actually casting the best cadets. They were just telling them that was the best cadets. But oh, and also they needed to be like sponsored by high ranking people, but Nog didn't get in. So there was this like obvious it was shady. But then we also don't see what happens to Benteen, who she knows what she's doing is wrong, and she goes along with it a little bit, to the point that I think they say that, like, two people die on the Defiant and, like, 14 people die on the Lakota. Oh, yeah. She's getting court-martialed, for sure. Yeah. So, like, I feel like the difference in punishment between the cadet who legitimately didn't know, like, 
really what he was doing probably until after the fact and also didn't kill anyone Mm -hmm. to Benteen, who's commanding a ship that to fire on another ship that she knows is not actually full of changelings. Does she? How how in on it do we think she is? Well, I mean, because Cisco goes, you and you know, they're not all changelings. I feel like after the first few minutes, it should have become evident based on the behavior of the ship. Mm. But like, if she had been certain, then she would have just kept going. But she doesn't. I think she was just willing to go to a certain point, and then the idea of murdering a ship full of Starfleet people was just a bridge too far for her. Yeah, I think that's true. Which, actually, I wish we had seen more of that, because that's actually a huge decision, because her making that decision saved everyone. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And she's she's personally is probably going to lose everything, but yeah. she still made yep. that decision. And even though she's not a good person, obviously, or at least she made some really bad calls here that resulted in death, Mm -hmm. she at least walked up to this, like, final line and decided not to cross it. And that is very hard. And one of the reasons Mm -hmm. why that's so hard is once you get people to take a step over that line where she knew about so much of this, people keep going Because they feel like now they have no choice. They're in too deep. Like, they can't stop. She ends up being, she goes ride or die and then is able to step back from it. Yeah, and Mm -hmm. I find that really Mm -hmm. interesting. And I wish we had gotten a scene for that instead of just her looking stricken when the Admiral gives the order. And then I think it's Worf is, like, giving Cisco the Mm -hmm. casualty report and whatever and says that that they stood down. So we don't even Mm -hmm. get to see her make that decision. And I think that that's kind of a missed opportunity. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. But yeah, I mean, I think like as far as Red Squad goes, I would I would hope they would have sort of like a like a first duty type court martial and they would probably be punished for sure. But there's like definitely degrees of who should have known better to question more. And right. I mean, can you imagine being the people who are just like the rando ensign on the Lakota who didn't know what was going on at all. Yeah. Ensign Rando. Yeah, because we've seen how much the senior staff tells their their underlings, and mm-hmm. it's not a lot. And how much of it is, again, you're going to do it because I said to do it. Yeah. I mean, even on a well-run ship that's not full of shenanigans, the people in Lower Decks rarely knew what was going on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so we don't get to see the reckoning at, at Starfleet. I mean, because there was also that Bolian ambassador who was in on it all. So it's more than one ambassador. Yeah. Yeah. I just feel like there's high level decision making that happens and sometimes you don't know the reasoning for it. So like a lot of these people were probably totally innocent. Mm-hmm. <sighs> and that's the nature of complicity sometimes. Sometimes. So hold your commanders accountable. Yep. Before you rush off and kill people. Mm-hmm. I gotta say, like, the final, I guess, line of the episode, I don't think it's the last one, but it's the best one, is from Cisco, who goes, if the changelings want to destroy what we've built here, they're going to have to do it themselves. We will not do it for them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Such a good line. Yeah, which goes right back to, Grace, you were talking about the o- O'Brien changing line. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Where it's like, we do not fear you the way you fear us. Yeah. Mm -hmm. In the end, it's your fear that will destroy you. Again, so monsters are due on Maple Street. That's good stuff, man. There's a lot of good stuff in these (laughs) episodes. And it's just wild because when you sit down and like think about the harm that happened in this episode, this admiral and his like misguided need to control everything killed people mm-hmm. that would still mm-hmm. be standing if they had just done nothing such a good episode and it forces you to think about some pretty scary stuff yes mm-hmm. paradise has never seemed so well armed yeah. yeah yep yeah damn how do we follow that up Ugh. well i i think it's interesting just i i feel like these are episodes that really get forgotten when you take a look back at the history of Deep Space Nine. They're just kind of middle season four and there's such uh, like intensifying of these storylines going forward that 
the stuff that happened that, like, one time back on Earth almost gets kind of just overlooked. And But I, I think it's that they should be considered a highlight of the season and certainly some of the uh, best able to stand up today episodes of, of that arc. I really think that these kinds of episodes represent the best of what Star Trek is capable of. I mean, this is what science fiction is for anyway. It's taking what we would consider to be impossible situations and putting humanity under a microscope. Like, how would we handle these situations? Mm -hmm. And I think this is as good as it gets when it kind of comes to making humanity look in a mirror. I mean, it shows us what fear can really do to people. We see Mm -hmm. Ben Sisko doubting the humanity of his own father yeah right so like when when joseph gets agitated and cuts himself we see ben staring at that cutting board waiting to see if that blood is going to turn into a changeling or you say like yeah we totally do need a big wall to keep people out or we need to be checking everyone's ID all the time. Police need to always check everyone's ID and ask you whether you're citizenship on the citizen on the census. Or the people who are at the top of the chain of command should not be questioned because they're at the top of the chain of command. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's hard because sometimes like, you know, it, it never gets at the root of the fear. It's always just like it's things that people without really thinking too hard give up rights, sometimes their own, but often, more often, other people's mm-hmm. rights in exchange for a false sense of security. Well, it's really true that when we are in a state of fear, we want to believe that there are people in charge who have it all under control, that there's someone who the people in charge know what's up, and then that they're making the best decisions for us. That's a huge comfort when you're afraid. Thinking that everything is in capable hands means you will say... You'll say yes to a lot more things. Mm-hmm. To stay comfortable and safe. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Woo! Oof. Oof. <laughs> well, we're about out of time. Do you want to rank these episodes? I mean, as a like as a pair of episodes? To Clive. To Clive. To Clive. Five out of five breads bread puddings. <laughs> oh yeah. Oh. Five out of five squishy seagulls three out of three centimeters of moved furniture (laughs) (laughs) awesome well let's get you all to go around and tell me where people can find you on the interwebs starting with andy easiest place to find me is on twitter my twitter handle is at first time track where i very rarely live tweet star trek (laughs) and grace you can find me on Twitter at BoneCrusherJankin and your sweet dreams and beautiful nightmares. And Sue? You can find me on Twitter at Spaltor. That's S-P-A-L-T-O-R. And I'm Jara. You can find me at Jara Penguin on Twitter or at TrekkieFeminist.com. To contact our show, email crew at womenatwarp.com or visit us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram at Women at Warp. And for more from the Roddenberry Podcast Network, visit podcast.roddenberry.com. Thanks so much for listening. Mm-hmm.